For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning, A Revelation of the Mystery. This is part two, Romans chapter 11, verses 28 through 32. So welcome back. We are now continuing our work this morning through Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, where Paul is now drawing this main section of the book to a close. We began uh, in chapter 9 with a new subject, if you will, a new section in the book of Romans. And Paul, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, has been dealing with the unbelief and apostasy of Israel. And now Paul is drawing this main section of the book to a close. And in this section of text, where Paul has been addressing the unbelief of his Jewish countrymen, Paul is concluding his case with the revelation of a mystery, a mystery which was hidden, a mystery which found its origin, its source in the infinite mind of God in eternity past, so to speak, and a mystery which has now been revealed in the gospel, now being revealed in the writing of Paul here in Romans chapter 11. The revelation of that mystery is an answer to the question that originally opened this chapter in verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Has he cast away Israel? Paul answers emphatically, certainly not. God forbid, may it never be. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. They are, as Paul would say, beloved for the sake of the fathers. Here is the revelation of the mystery, the mystery of God's redemptive plans and purposes. Blindness, verse 25, has in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so it is in this way, in this way, that all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So although the vast majority of ethnic and theocratic Israel has rejected the gospel, although they have rejected their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has graciously, mercifully spared a remnant through faith in his son according to the election of grace. So along with those 7,000 in the days of Elijah who would not bow the knee to Baal, Paul himself an example of the grace and mercy of God in preserving a remnant from among the Jews for the glory of God's own name, While sparing a remnant, God has blinded the rest, and their fall now has resulted in the riches of God's grace and mercy to the nations, to the Gentiles. However, God's redemptive plans and purposes do not simply end or terminate upon the judgment, God's judgment upon Israel, and God's grace and mercy to the Gentiles. Paul acknowledges a future day, a day in which, having been rejected, a day in which his Jewish countrymen will find future acceptance with God. And having saved only a remnant, God promises to save or to reap their fullness. Provoking the Jews to jealousy through covenant blessings poured out upon the Gentiles, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the natural branches broken off from the olive tree of Israel, will be grafted back in and grafted in through faith in Jesus Christ. God, 
who has broken them off is able to graft them in again. Verse 26, it's in this way that all Israel will be saved. Remember the words of Jeremiah the prophet from Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me from forever. In other words, they will never <laughs> depart from or cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Has God cast away his people? Right? In answer to that original question, has God cast away his people? Absolutely not. Certainly not. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. What's the point of that lesson? The point is this, that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his covenant. Now it's here that Paul concludes his treatise concerning the Jews, beginning in verse 28. Paul is going to conclude his case now, beginning in verse 28. And Paul summarizes there by saying this, concerning the gospel, they... The Jews, and let's, let's remember the antecedents, if you will, or the, the objects of those pronouns, right? Concerning the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, for the sake of the Gentiles, but concerning the election, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It cannot be taken away. Four, verse 30, as you Gentiles were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their, the Jews, disobedience, even so these Jews also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they, the Jews, may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, Jew and Gentile alike, that he might have mercy on all. Now, it's in verse 28, beginning in verse 28, that Paul now summarizes all that has been said concerning physical Israel from chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's going to summarize these chapters, this section of text. And in his summary, Paul begins by contrasting these two simultaneous realities concerning the Jews. Simultaneous realities. Okay, and I want to begin by considering the first. The first of these simultaneous or contemporaneous realities concerning the Jews, Paul says that concerning the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are enemies for your sake. So the first of those two realities we want to consider is this. The Jews concerning the gospel are enemies for the sake of you Gentiles. And let's talk about that. Paul, in saying this, Paul isn't merely describing the enmity that exists at that time between ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. Right? He's not referring to the open hostility that Jews often showed toward Paul himself or toward the church in general. Right? He's not re referring to that enmity or that hostility. Paul refers to the Jews as enemies concerning the gospel. Now think about that with me. To borrow language from Ephesians chapter 2, a text that we've looked at in this very section, to borrow language from Ephesians chapter 2, they are then alienated from the gospel. 
the Jewish people are alienated from the gospel, alienated from the church, the assembly of God's people, alienated from God. To borrow language from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, they are strangers from the new covenant, strangers to the promises and blessings of that covenant. They are without Jesus Christ and therefore without God in this world. Think about that statement with me. They are enemies concerning the gospel. To the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, the Lord there describes describes the Jews in Revelation chapter 3 as those who say they are Jews and are not. He describes their synagogues as synagogues of Satan. The Jews are enemies concerning the gospel. They are enemies, enemies of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. John says, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. John says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. The Jews have rejected their Messiah. They've rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ came to his own, the Jews, and and the Jews received him not. They are enemies. In that, brothers and sisters, consider the goodness and severity of God the severity of God toward those who fell. Goodness to you, toward you, if you continue in his goodness. But toward those who fell, consider the severity of God. I remember several years ago now, I was listening to a sermon by a, a Presbyterian pastor, Reformed pastor, who was speaking about the current condition of the Jews, the current condition of the Jews as the people of God. And with the passing of the Old Covenant, think with me about this now, with the passing of the Old Covenant, There is no covenant right now whereby people can be said to relate to God except for through the new covenant. The new covenant is the only covenant right now whereby anyone can say rightly that they relate to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no covenant right now by which anyone can be described as the covenant people of God apart from then faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. There is no one no one in covenant with God who has not placed faith in Jesus Christ. That includes the children of Presbyterians who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That certainly includes, it certainly includes unbelieving Jews who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. It certainly includes them. This pastor in the sermon was talking about his Jewish friend who is not a believer. And he asserted that his Jewish friend would be saved because the Jewish people remain in covenant with God. He further asserted that if his Jewish friend wouldn't be allowed into heaven, then heaven wasn't a place that he wanted to go either. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Now that doesn't give anyone, that doesn't give anyone any excuse for that rotten sin of anti-Semitism. Right, that rotten sin of racism. Right, that's ethnic vainglory. That's boasting against them, which is exactly what Paul in Romans 11 tells us not to do. Right, don't be haughty and boast against the branches. Fear. Right, consider the goodness and severity of God. But let's get our theology straight and preach the gospel to Jews. That's Paul's heart in this section of text. His heart is that the Jewish people would be saved. What accord 
has Christ with Belial. That's why we preach the gospel to lost people that they might be saved. Paul says, my heart's desire is that the Jewish people might be saved. I have continual grief in my heart that they are estranged from Christ. What communion has light with darkness? What part has an unbeliever with a believer? Concerning the gospel, Paul says they are enemies. They are enemies. With this statement, Paul is essentially repeating a truth that he's already introduced and he's making it even clearer, even clearer now. Verse 11, he refers to their fall. Right? Verse 12, he refers to their fall, their transgression, their failure. Verse 15, he refers to their being cast away. And that cast away in direct contrast with their future acceptance, with their fullness. And here in verse 28, he contrasts the current condition of unbelieving Jews as enemies with the condition of Jews as beloved and beloved for the sake of the fathers. Whatever enemies means, whatever Paul means by that term enemies, it is speaking of the exact opposite of what it means to be beloved. They are enemies for, this, for your sake, beloved for the sake of the fathers. We'll talk about that in just a moment, right? Enemies concerning the gospel. Now notice, notice further, Paul clarifies then a purpose for their current rejection. A purpose for that condition, if you will, as enemies of the gospel or as enemies for your sake. They're enemies for your sake. Paul, in context now, is addressing Gentiles at the church at Rome. When he says, for your sake, he's addressing Gentiles. And he's saying that God's current judgment upon unbelieving and apostate Israel is for the benefit or for the blessing of believing Gentiles. Their current condition is for the blessing of believing Gentiles. Their failure was the context in which the gospel was sent to and preached to the nations. Their rejection was the context in which the gospel is preached to the nations. Now think with me about that. Right? There are several ways in which God's dealings with apostate Israel, unbelieving Israel, there are several ways in which God's dealings with them serve to benefit the Gentiles. First, God had promised the salvation of the Gentiles through his judgment upon apostate and unbelieving Israel. And if you remember, we looked at several of those texts in Romans chapter 11. Right? We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. Listen to the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. They have provoked me, God says, to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. Therefore, God says, I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish or by an ignorant nation. So for example, let me give you an example of that. When Paul and Barnabas then preached the gospel to Jews in Acts 13, which was Paul's practice, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, right? So when Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to Jews in Acts 13 and the Jews reject it, Paul sees, he recognizes in that rejection the judgment of God and he sees in that judgment of God a promise of God to save the Gentiles. He, he knows that from Jeremiah. He knows that from Isaiah. He knows that from Ezekiel. He knows that from the prophets. And Paul then says to them, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, Jews, 
But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, Paul says, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, Paul says. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. There is a promise of God. There is a practice of God. There is a principle of God in that. That upon the rejection of the Jews, upon their rejection of their own Messiah, the gospel would go to the Gentiles. God promised the salvation of the Gentiles through his judgment upon apostate Israel. You could say, again, that he, he employs his wrath in the service of his great mercy. He employs his judgment, his righteous judgment, his just judgment in the service of his great mercy. Secondly, It is through God's judgment of Israel that the old covenant passes away to make room for a new. (laughs) It's through God's judgment of Israel that the old covenant passes away. It would be through a new and better covenant with better promises and a better surety that the Gentiles would be blessed. Hebrews chapter eight, verse seven. If you'd like to turn there, you can. Uh, But listen to what this author says in Hebrews chapter eight, verse seven. If that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. If that first covenant was faultless, if it worked, so to speak, there would be no place sought for a second. Praise God for a second. Amen? Praise God for a second. But Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, finding fault with the Jews, God says this, Behold, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me. How is that possible? It's through the spirit of God. The spirit of God indwells them, right? From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and to their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. What is true of those who are in covenant with God under the new covenant? Their sins are forgiven. Their sins are forgiven. Their unrighteousness, their lawless deeds, God casts into the sea of his forgetfulness. And in that, he says, verse 13, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Listen to this from John Owen. I thought this was extremely helpful. John Owen says this, could the first covenant have perfected and consecrated the church? Could it have communicated all the grace and mercy that God intended to indulge upon the children of men? The wise and holy author of it would have had no thought about the introduction and establishment of another Could that first covenant do what God had intended? Then no thought would have been given to a second. It would have been no way agreeable unto his infinite wisdom and faithfulness to do so. Wherefore, the promise hereof doth irrefragably or irrefutably prove 
that both the first covenant and all the services of it were imperfect and therefore to be removed and taken away. And it's under the promises and benefits of the new covenant that God saves a people for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation for the glory of his name. To the son, he says, behold, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. It is through God's judgment upon Israel that God establishes the new covenant. Third then, third, it is through the example of their failure, the failure of the Jews, that Gentiles are pointed away from bondage to sin, pointed away from their bondage under the law, and pointed to the freedom, to freedom from that bondage through Jesus Christ. They're pointed away from bondage, from enslavement under the curse, and pointed to faith in Jesus Christ. The law, through Israel's failure, the law is more observably seen as a tutor that points us to Jesus Christ. Now turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, there's a text here that we've considered before, about six months ago. Um, This is the text we've considered before, but it's going to help us by way of reminder, to consider this text again in our current context, okay? So I want, to, I, want to, I want us to remember this text, and I want us to remember how it applies in Romans chapter 11. Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is writing to a largely Gentile church, to Gentile churches across Asia Minor. But these Gentile churches were being assailed by the error of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were saying that faith in Christ is not enough. God's promises were made to the circumcised. God's promises were made to those who keep the law. God's promises were fulfilled to those who were Jews, essentially, who were circumcised, kept the law. And if you believe the gospel that Paul preaches, then God has abandoned his covenant. That's what they would assume, would presume. But what does Paul say? What does Paul say? Verse 21. Tell me then, you who desire to be under the law, those who are amenable to the Judaizers, those Judaizers themselves, those who would seek a justifying righteousness with God through works of the law, not through faith in Jesus Christ. To those who desire to be under the law, do you not hear what the law says? Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, a slave, the other by a free woman. Now the bondwoman in this analogy, the bondwoman was Hagar. And the son of Hagar was Ishmael. The free woman was Sarah. And the son of Sarah, the free woman, was Isaac. Okay? Verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman, that's Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. Right? Abraham, essentially, Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hand to, quote unquote, fulfill the promise of God. And Hagar was born according to the flesh or Ishmael. Ishmael was born of Hagar according to the flesh. But he who was of the free woman, Isaac, Isaac was born according to promise. The free woman, her son was born through promise. God had promised her a son, Sarah a son, in her old age. Had promised Abraham a son in his old age. It would not come through the flesh. It would come through the promise of God. God made it happen. 
Amen? God fulfilled that promise. Now he says in verse 24, these things are symbolic. For those who don't see symbolism in the Bible, uh, these things are symbolic. (laughs) This whole event in biblical redemptive history, these things are symbolic. Why did this history take place? To point to something greater? Right? That's the study of typology. These things are typological of greater fulfillments. They point to something greater. They point to Jesus Christ. These things, verse 24, are symbolic. For these women, they are or they represent the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, that covenant made with Moses and the people at Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, is represented by Hagar. She gives birth to those who are in bondage to their sin under the law. For this, verse 25, Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Did you catch what Paul just said there in verse 25? That bondage, Hagar, Ishmael, bondage under the law, bondage to sin, That bondage corresponds to the Jerusalem, which now is. Judaism, first century Judaism, first century Jews, in bondage with her children. The covenant covenant given by God to the physical seed of Abraham at Mount Sinai has been corrupted, has been polluted by the Jews, by the Judaizers. Now corresponds to Hagar, the bondwoman under bondage to the law, it represents bondage. It represents slavery. Verse 25, it corresponds to Jerusalem, which, is now, which now is the current physical seat of Abraham. Why? Because they have not sought a justifying righteousness through faith alone in Jesus Christ. They have sought it, as it were, through the law. And the law was never meant, never meant to give the freedom that only comes through Jesus Christ. The mere physical children of Abraham, according to the flesh, correspond to Hagar and Mount Sinai and bondage. That Jerusalem is in slavery with her children. Who are her children? They are Ishmaelites. Paul just called the Jews who reject Jesus Christ enemies concerning the gospel. He just called them uh, Ishmaelites. Anyone who pursues a justifying righteousness before God through works of the law, they are Ishmaelites. Don't follow the same example of disobedience. Don't don't fall thinking the same thoughts after them. Don't fall according to that same example of faithlessness, that same example of unbelief. There is no freedom through the law. There is no justifying righteousness through the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, in this letter, Paul has already said, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What should the law cause us to do? The law should cause us to flee to Jesus Christ in faith, to trust in Jesus Christ alone, not to take any comfort in our law keeping, but only through faith in Jesus Christ to take comfort in him, his accomplished work, his imputed righteousness. And what do we see in the example of unbelieving and apostate Israel? We see bondage under the law. Verse 26, but rather than in contrast, the Jerusalem above, in contrast with that Jerusalem that now is, the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem is free, which is the mother of us all. 
That heavenly Jerusalem corresponds with Sarah, the free woman. That heavenly Jerusalem corresponds with the promise. Sarah is the mother of all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter three, you are children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. We are the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are the sons of Sarah, the free woman, the sons of promise. And that through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 27, for it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ with believing Abraham, we, brethren, as Isaac was, we, Paul says, are children of promise. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are the children of Abraham. We are true Israel. Elect Jews and elect Gentiles all of those together who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In other words, this isn't replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. This is how God fulfills his plans and purposes. This is the mystery that Paul is speaking of. Verse 29, but as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. In other words, when Ishmael was persecuting Isaac, even so it is now. Nevertheless, What does the scripture say, right? They are enemies of the gospel. Enemies concerning the gospel. Enemies for your sake. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Those who do not place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will not be saved. How is anyone saved? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. So who are the children of the bondwoman? Paul is saying here in Galatians 4 that it's the unbelieving, unbelieving Jews. Who are the children of the free woman? Those who through faith in Jesus Christ inherit the promise. Who are those who inherit all the promises of God made to Abraham? They are those who share the faith of believing Abraham, true Israel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, made up of a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation a people made up of elect Jews and elect Gentiles, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers. And that includes you, believer, if you have turned from your sin to trust in him. Now turn back with me then to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, concerning the gospel, they are enemies. Now notice what Paul says there concerning this purpose. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. The Jews having rejected Jesus Christ did not frustrate the plans and purposes of God. The Jews having rejected their Messiah resulted in the judgment of God, but that didn't result in a frustration of all God's plans. God didn't have to go to plan B. This was God's plan all along. Where the wrath of God was then employed in the service of his great mercy, where salvation then came to the Gentiles. Think. It's only in the context of disobedience that grace and mercy find relevance and meaning. In other words, we can't understand mercy apart from disobedience. We can't understand mercy apart from the reality of sin, apart from the reality of judgment, apart from the reality of wrath. It's only in the context of disobedience, unbelief, justice, Wrath. It's only in that context that we understand the relevance and the meaning 
of grace and mercy. And I would submit to you, the more, the more that we understand judgment and wrath, the results of, or the fruits of disobedience and unbelief, the more that we understand those things, the more that we come to apprehend and embrace and comprehend the manifold wonders of grace and mercy. Do you see? It's only through their disobedience, the unbelief and apostasy of Israel that we see fully the magnitudes, the magnitude of God's grace and mercy in saving a remnant of the Jews and in saving all Israel made up of elect Jews and elect Gentiles. It is only in that context that we see the magnitude of God's mercy and we should flee to Jesus Christ. We should cling to Jesus Christ who is our life. We should endure in him through faith. It should cause us to rejoice in him, to exult in him, to extol his person and work. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. If you see the effects, the results of disobedience and sin and transgression and judgment, if you see the wrath that is to come, you flee to Christ. Ho, you thirst, come to the waters and drink freely. God extends to you a free offer of the gospel of good news of grace. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can have Christ as your treasure. You can inherit with the saints eternal blessings in him. It's an amazing offer. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Surely God will call a nation who he does not know. A nation who does not know you shall run to you. Isaiah says, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There is hope in the gospel. That's why the preaching of repentance, the preaching against sin, the preaching of the judgment of God, the preaching of hell, preaching the wrath of God, it's why those things are so important. They have fallen into such disrepute in our day, such that people can't even use the terms, can't even use the words. Consider the goodness and severity of God. Those two things held both together, held up as characteristics of God's own essential nature, the goodness and the severity of God, his exacting judgment, his righteous retribution. And in light of that righteous retribution, his infinite mercy, his boundless grace, The only way we're going to see it as infinite and boundless is when we see the magnitude of our own sin. Like Paul says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. The chief of sinners, whom I am chief, Paul says. Having stated that reality, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Having stated that reality, Paul now turns concerning the Jews and he turns to that simultaneous or contemporaneous reality that is also true, also true of the Jews. Also true of ethnic or physical Israel according to the flesh. Look at verse 28 then. Look at verse 28. 
Concerning the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, you Gentiles. But, in contrast with that, concerning the election, they, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of the fathers. It becomes pretty clear when we start using, when we understand those pronouns, right? Concerning the election of grace that Paul referenced in verse 5, that election of grace, God's election, God's determination, a determination of God's own infinite mind, they are beloved. They are beloved. The Jews are beloved. Not in and of themselves, not in and of themselves, but beloved here for the sake of the fathers. Verse 28, God's love for them is only because of his love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is the connection there? God's love for them is through those to whom God entered into covenant, with whom God entered into covenant, right? He loves them for the sake of those with whom he covenanted because of his love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is manifest. God's love for the fathers is expressed in the love that he pours out upon the remnant of their offspring is manifest in God's dealings with Jews. Charles Hodge said this, the covenant that God had made with Abraham, the covenant that God had made with Abraham was simply inconsistent with the final rejection of the Jews as a people. God foresaw and predicted their temporary defection and rejection from his kingdom but never contemplated their being forever excluded. And notice here that Paul speaks of God's election, not of individuals in this case, but rather his election of the Jews as a people. He's not speaking now in terms of their, of his election in terms of individuals as he has before, right? Notice that he's speaking in the context here of the Jewish people. As in 11 chapter two, he's referring to a people, a people whom God foreknew. As God cast off his people whom he foreknew. In other words, do the covenant that God had made with their fathers, unfaithful as Israel certainly was, and then broken off in her unfaithfulness, do that covenant that God had made with their fathers, God still sustains a particular relationship of love toward them. That love will be demonstrated and vindicated in their ultimate restoration when he, as Paul has already said, reaps their fullness. When they, in contrast to their rejection, will be accepted. It doesn't mean that every single ethnic Jew will be saved. That's not what Paul is saying. But it does say that it will come a time when God will reap their fullness in contrast with their rejection or will reap their, a number, their salvation, reap a number in contrast with their remnant. The grace of God's calling cannot be made void. The grace of God's calling cannot fail. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, how does Paul state it here in verse 29? The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now remember, he's speaking about God's calling of a people. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In the Greek, that word is moved up for emphasis. Irrevocable. That word means without regret. Without Regret are the gifts and calling of God. Without regret are the gifts and calling of God of a particular people for his name, 
namely those physical descendants of Abraham. God does not regret the covenant that he made with Abraham and his seed. He doesn't regret that covenant. God's own steadfast commitment to that covenant is seen in the fact that it is irrevocable. Verse 29. And so Paul appeals then to God's own commitment to that covenant as the ground upon which he hopes for the future salvation of his Jewish countrymen. Paul is hoping in a day, he understands that there will be a day in which God will restore, if he will, the fullness of Israel. Paul explains that hope in verse 30. He explains that hope in verse 30. Verse 30, for as you were once disobedient to God, speaking to the Gentiles, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, the Jews, even so these Jews also have now been disobedience, disobedient that through the mercy shown to you, they also may obtain mercy. So in the wisdom and in the power of God, just as the disobedience of the Jews has led in God's providence to the gospel obedience of a great number of elect Gentiles, so it will be that the mercy shown to formerly disobedient Gentiles will lead in God's providence to the gospel obedience of a great number of elect Jews. Let me say that again so we hear it, right? Just as the disobedience of the Jews has led in God's providence to the gospel of obedience of a great number of elect Gentiles, so it will be in that same way that the mercy shown to formerly disobedient Gentiles will lead in God's providence to the gospel of obedience of a great number of elect Jews. And Paul says as much already, hasn't he? For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Four, verse 32. In the wisdom and in the grace of God, verse 32, God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. The Lord himself says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God commits them all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. Now, four times in these last few verses, Paul refers to the mercy of God. Four times, right? And four times in these last few verses, Paul refers to the disobedience of men. The disobedience of men, four times. The mercy of God, four times. Dr. Murray says, the lesson in this is obvious. It is only in the context of disobedience that mercy has any relevance. Mercy is of such a character that disobedience is its complement. Disobedience is its presupposition. And only as exercised to the disobedience does it exist and operate. Only as mercy is exercised to the disobedient is, does it exist and operate. We say that truth, that principle in operation in verse 32. Notice in verse 32 that it's not simply the disobedience of men that gives occasion for the mercy of God. What does the text say? God himself has committed them all to disobedience. God has, the word means confined them. God has imprisoned them under the law, so to speak. God has put them, if you will, in bondage to his law 
so that there is no possibility of escape, so that every mouth will be stopped, so that all the world will become guilty before God, so that there is no escape except for the mercy of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He confines them. He imprisons them so that they can find mercy. They can find freedom through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. The more that you comprehend the severity of that first clause, the more that you begin to embrace the hope and joy that is contained in the second clause. God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. God shuts you up in your sin. He stops your mouth in your sin. He gives you no room for excuse. You have no excuse. You will find no excuse on the pages of Scripture for your sin. You have no excuse. Everyone is guilty under the law for a purpose that he might show mercy that he might show mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. God shuts you up for the purpose that he might show you mercy. He declares his righteous justice, his righteous judgment, so that you might flee to him for grace. You might flee to Jesus Christ for mercy. He employs his great wrath in the service of his astonishing mercy, that he would have mercy on you that he would have mercy on me is an astonishing wonder of his mercy, an astonishing wonder of his grace, an astonishing wonder of his, of his person, of his essence, of his character, of his nature. God delights to show mercy. I'm fascinated by the interaction that Moses has with God, where Moses pleads with God to show him his glory. God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. God says to Moses, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll make all my glory pass before you. And what does that glory consist of there? It consists in God declaring his name to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion, right? Our God, for the glory of his name, delights to show mercy to the praise of his great glory, amen? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The all, verse 32, the all of verse 32 is obviously not all men without exception. There are those who will reject that grace, reject that mercy, astonishingly so. It is a wonder of our intransigence in our sin that we would ever reject such offers of free grace and mercy. But men do. The all of verse 32 means all men without distinction. Not every single ethnic Jew, certainly not every single ethnic Gentile, but the fullness of elect Jews, the fullness of elect Gentiles, as many as God will call to himself as the objects of his abundant mercy, mercy, a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Brothers and sisters, consider the goodness and severity of God. Severity towards those who fell, goodness toward you if you continue in his goodness. God is not to be trifled with, right? Our God is a consuming fire. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. But our God delights to show mercy. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter four. And let the author of Hebrews here, let Paul exhort us to apply this truth in our own 
heart and mind. Verse 11 says this, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Don't fall, don't stumble according to their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Consider the severity of God. But verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, by virtue of his person and work, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. All praise, honor, and glory to our gracious Heavenly Father and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom by the Spirit all the blessings of Christ's work are applied to those who put their faith in Him. Amen. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we thank You, Lord, for this proclamation of Your mercy and grace through the Gospel. This abundant, gracious, infinite, matchless provision of grace and mercy through the person and work of Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would apprehend the depths of our own sin, apprehend the the righteousness of your own just judgments. And in light of that, would contemplate, meditate on, comprehend, apprehend, embrace through faith the lengths and widths and depths of your mercy, your grace, and your love toward us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We come to you, grateful hearts, trusting you just exulting in you, extolling you for that grace and mercy shown to us in the person and work of your Son. Help us, Lord, to live in light of that grace and mercy. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to magnify your great name. Help us to be faithful in our preaching of the gospel that others may enter in, that all the elect come to faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ will receive the full reward of his suffering, that you be magnified in it. We pray in his name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.